All right. Well, why don't we start out praying? Amen. Who is a bold, empowered, Holy Spirit-filled believer who would like to stand up and pray for us? There you go. ready to get in the word? Look, most of us now who went to Louisiana are recovering from a long weekend of being in the swamps, meeting with men who are filled with the holy, zealous, and consuming fire of God. Right now, Elder Eric, Elder Charlie, Pastors Zeke, Jake, Mike, and Judah, along with their sons, are headed back to Denton, Texas, To bring a trailer that will be used in the service of God there. Look, tonight is going to be revelatory, refreshing, and reminding of what God is doing in our body. We're going to read 2 Chronicles 30, and then we're going to recap a little bit. Are you guys ready to dig in? Just one chapter tonight, so our attention should be that much more stringent. As per tradition... Can we have Miss Jen read the chapter for us? Amen. Hezekiah sent word to all of Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. The king and his officials and the whole assembly in Jerusalem decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. They had not been able to celebrate it at regular time because it not enough priests had consecrated themselves, and the people had not assembled in Jerusalem. The plan seemed right both to the king and to the whole assembly. They decided to send a proclamation throughout Israel from Beersheba to Dan, calling the people to come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. It had not been celebrated in large numbers according to what it was written. At the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king and from his officials, which read, People of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you who are left, who have escaped from the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not be, do not be like your fathers and brothers, who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their fathers, so that he made them an object of horror, as you see. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. Submit to the Lord. Come to the sanctuary which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. If you return to the Lord, then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to this land for the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. The couriers went from town to town and Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulun, but the people scorned and ridiculed them. Nevertheless, some of the men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. Also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them the unity of mind to carry out what the king and the officials had ordered, following the word of the Lord. 
a very large crowd of people assembled in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. They removed the altars in Jerusalem and cleared away the incense altar and threw them into the Kidron Valley. They slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. The priests and the Levites were ashamed, ashamed and consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings to the temple of the Lord. Then they took up their regular positions as prescribed in the law of Moses, the man of as the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests sprinkled the blood handed to them by the Levites. Since many in the crowd had not consecrated themselves, the Levites had to kill the Passover lambs for all of those who were not ceremonially clean and could not consecrate their lamb to the Lord. Although most of the, of the many people who came from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover, contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the Lord who is good pardon everyone who sets his heart on seeking God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, if and even if he is not clean according to the rules of the sanctuary. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. The Israelites were present in Jerusalem, celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days with great rejoicing, while the Levites and the priests sang to the Lord every day, accompanied by the Lord's instruments of praise. Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good understanding of the service of the Lord. For the seven days they ate their assigned portion and offered fellowship offerings and praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. The whole assembly then agreed to celebrate the festival seven more days. So for another seven days they celebrated joyfully. <laughs> Hezekiah, king of Judah, provided a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep and goats for the assembly. And the officials provided them with thousands, with a thousand bulls and with ten thousand sheep and goats. A great number of priests consecrated themselves. The entire assembly of Judah rejoiced, along with the priests and Levites and all who had assembled from Israel, including the aliens who had come from Israel and those who lived in Judah. There was a great joy in Jerusalem, for since the day of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Hallelujah. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them, for their prayers reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. Man, nothing like this has ever been seen in Jerusalem. Well, I assure you what God is doing here is going to be a replication of what God did there. And it's going to be even greater. Come on, y'all believe that? Yes. Look, tonight we're going to talk about all kinds of incredible things. I had the great joy of studying a little bit with Eric, Judah, Pastor Mike, Pastors Zeke and Jake, uh, Charlie. And so what you're going to hear tonight is kind of a culmination from some of the Pastors and elders of the One Association. That's kind of nice, isn't it? Look, tonight we're going to talk about evangelism. That's exciting, isn't it? I can assure you that many people think they know what evangelism looks like, but they don't. And tonight we're going to define some things about evangelism. Are you interested in that? Before we dig in, let's recap a little bit of last week's teaching. Last week we covered that Hezekiah was a son of... Of 25 years. 
when he became king. He was the son of Ahaz biologically, but he did not follow in Ahaz's ways. Who was he called a son of? David. That's because he imitated him and became like David. In the first month, he opened the front doors of the temple. Say, open the front door. He opened the doors of the temple and began to consecrate it. He started on the east side, just like God always does. He then orders the priests to remove the defilement. We learn that this was referred to nasty menstrual filth that brought death where there was supposed to be life. Y'all remember that? We also read from the king's account that Hezekiah destroyed Nehushtan. That's a funny word. That was made by Moses to represent judgment and salvation, but it became a source of death. They started with consecration of themselves first and then began to consecrate the temple, resulting in all of the filth being sent to hell where it belonged. That was Gehenna, the Kidron Valley. And toward the end of the chapter, we saw that the consecration resulted in sacrifices being brought and offered for all Israel first, and then also 70 bulls offered for the nations. Isn't it incredible that they're sacrificing for the nations after being consecrated, and then tonight we're going to see those nations come in. Look, before we dig in, I want to remind you that we made some parallels between Hezekiah, the son of David's ministry, in Second Chronicles, and Jesus, the son of David's ministry, in John chapters 1 through 4. Y'all remember that? Oh, yeah. Hezekiah's introduction to the book of Chronicles begins with the statement that he is the son of David. In John 1, we see Jesus as the true son of David, the king and savior of Israel. Hezekiah then begins to clear and consecrate the temple. That is just like John chapter 2, when we see Jesus rid the temple of all the menstrual filth, and restore it as a house of life to all the nations. Hezekiah's next step is to purify the priesthood and destroy Nehushtan. In John 3, we see Jesus consecrating a priest of Israel, Nicodemus, by saying that Jesus will be lifted up like the bronze snake. You see the correlation there? In John 4, Jesus begins to baptize and gain disciples. And then he meets with a Samaritan woman. You guys should be familiar with that passage. Tonight we're going to see how John 4 relates to 2 Chronicles in the sense of evangelism after consecration and cleansing. You might even notice that Hezekiah and Jesus were ministering to the same people in the same place. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Law on the lips. Liaison Linton, would you start us out by reading chapter 30 and verse 1, and we're going to dig in. Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah, and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. Man, this is incredible. Hezekiah is doing something extraordinary. He is consecrated and he has washed the temple and now he's doing something that is very unique. Look, we have been learning what is going on in the northern kingdom for some time now. In Hezekiah's time, the Assyrians had conquered much of the northern kingdom and deported many of the Israelites to Assyria. 
This is happening in the time frame when the Assyrians are starting to conquer most of northern Israel. Also, remember we shared this last week, lions had started eating the people that were there. So while Hezekiah is doing this, sending these letter, letters, there are lions eating the people. Look, while this is going on, up, oh, lost my place. While this is going on, Hezekiah begins in the only place he could. While all these things are happening, while such tragedy, while there is uh, deportations and exile and destruction and lions eating people, Hezekiah begins the only place he could, should, and must start by consecrating and cleansing the temple. That is such an important thing for our time. He starts by opening the doors while destruction is happening. That consecration and cleansing created the desire in Hezekiah for the very next thing after that. Invitation. Consecration and cleansing led towards invitation. The cleanliness that is happening inside of Hezekiah, what is the consecrating that's happening in Israel caused Hezekiah to look at those that were being eaten by lions and say, I want to invite you where I am. I want to invite you to the place that I am. Now also notice that it says, did did you notice that it says he sent letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh? Yeah. Well, that's pretty interesting because in chapter 28, we learn that hostility existed between Judah and Ephraim. He is sending these letters not just to those who are being destroyed, but the ones that were hostile to his family. This is what true consecration and cleansing produces inside of you. When you are consecrated to the Lord, it produces a desire for the hostile the horrible, and those in hellacious situations to be invited into the cleansing that you now stand in. Look, sometimes you pray, Lord, give me a heart for the lost. I want to minister to the lost. Well, how that happens, how God answers that prayer in your life, is He will begin to consecrate you and purify you in such an amazing and extraordinary ways that you will want to invite people to stand where you stand. Look, maybe some of you have lost your desire for the lost around us. You know what fixes that? When you are experiencing the consecrating and cleansing of the Holy Spirit, when God is dealing with your sin in a very extraordinary way and you're getting free of it, that causes you to want to invite everybody to come experience what you've experienced. Look, like Hezekiah, Jesus demonstrates this in John 4, 7 through 9. Who wants to read that? Get it, Rob. John 4, verse 7 through 9. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples have gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Look, later Jesus' disciples, they're going to come back, and they're going to find Jesus, and they are surprised when they see him talking with this Samaritan dog. Look, can I tell you how much consecration and cleansing 
plays an important role in evangelism. If there was anybody consecrated in that moment, it was Jesus. And what it caused in Jesus was a desire to go to the very worst of the worst. Look, it's not evangelism if you're always seeking to to go after people that you think will agree with you. If you're always looking for people who are just a little bit okay. When you are consecrated and cleansed from your sin, it will cause a desire in you to go to the worst of the worst. You want to pray for a heart for the lost? God will give you a heart for the lost. It's called a heart that is purified from sin. And he will begin to deal with your heart and purify it from sin. And that will naturally want to invite others to come experience what you're experiencing. Are you guys experiencing some purification lately? Man, that ought to make you look at people who are not and have compassion on them. Look at them and say, I want you to experience what I'm experiencing because what we're experiencing is great. Hey, Linton, pick up in verse 2 and read the 3. The king and his officials and the whole assembly in Jerusalem decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. They had not been able to celebrate it at the regular time because not enough priests had consecrated themselves and the people had not assembled in Jerusalem. Now, there's something I want you to catch here. This seems like a violation of Torah. But there is a little bit more at play going on. If any of you remember, when was Passover supposed to be celebrated? In the first month. I want to read to you Numbers. Actually, I'm going to hand that out. Who wants to read? Uh, Steve Thomas, you get Numbers 9, 9 through 13. And we're going to see something special here. That's it for now. (laughs) Numbers 9, 9 through 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, when any of you or your descendants are unclean because of a dead body or are away on a journey, they may still celebrate the Lord's Passover. They are to celebrate it on the 14th day of the second month at twilight. They are to eat the lamb together with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They must not leave any of it till morning or break any of its bones. When they celebrate the Passover, they must follow all the regulations. But if a man who is ceremonially clean and not on a journey fails to celebrate the Passover, that person must be cut off from his people because he did not present the Lord's offering at the appointed time. That man will bear the consequences of his sin. Look, in the Torah, God made special exceptions to the Passover because it was required to celebrate it. It wasn't an option, wasn't something that you could choose to do or not to do. It was required of every person. Did you hear that if you were clean and not on a journey and you didn't celebrate it, then you were to be cut off? If you were there and you were clean, pure, and you didn't have an excuse and you just simply stayed home, you were supposed to be cut off from the community. Now, I know that may sound harsh to some, but notice that God made exceptions for those who were not clean. If you were not clean, God made a special exception for you, God gave the chance for you to get yourself right with God so that you can partake in this. Man, that's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. It's almost like God, it's almost like the pastor saying, hey, if you were arguing with your wife before Sunday, we will hold Sunday back for you so you can come and join with everybody else. God is making a special exception. Say that's merciful. That's merciful. But what is happening in the time of Hezekiah is even more extreme. Because it wasn't just one person who wasn't unclean. There wasn't anybody who was clean. And neither was the temple. Therefore, the entire feast 
had been delayed because of this. If one person can delay it, nobody here was, was clean. And so other, and God allowed this to be delayed. In other words, they decided to wait until enough priests were consecrated to take in the harvest. Look, you're going to see an influx of people coming, but what they're waiting for is enough priests to get clean to be able to receive the harvest. Now, that's a good message, isn't it? You think maybe God would do that amongst us now? Delay an influx of a harvest so that enough priests can get right who can take care of the harvest? Look, it's not just the pastors that are responsible for every person that comes into this church. It is every priest in this room that is responsible. Perhaps God might be waiting on this body for every priest to get right because he's about to send an influx into this church. I kind of think that's what's happening in our body, and that's why we are in chapter 30 tonight. Hey, Linton, pick up in verse 4, and we're going to read on to 5. The plan seemed right right both to the king and to the whole assembly. They decided to send a proclamation throughout Israel from Beersheba to Dan, calling the people to come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. It had not been celebrated in large numbers according to what was written. Man, look, I'm not sure exactly how long it has been since Passover had been celebrated in this way. But the last Passover recorded in Scripture is in the time of Joshua. Come on. That's roughly a thousand years ago. Wow. A thousand years. And you know what? Just to be safe for some of you uh, Bible scholars, I'm sure that Passover was celebrated in some capacity. But you know, it also says in Josiah's day, which we're going to get there in a few weeks, that his Passover wasn't celebrated in the same capacity since the time of the judges, which was about a thousand years. So the point is, is that Israel had been failing to keep God's commands for some time. And there's an urgency here in what the people of Judah are doing. They're looking around and they're saying, hey, we haven't been able to do this for a long time. There's been a lot of bad kings. There's been a lot of craziness and wickedness and sin. We've got to get this ball rolling. It is time to get right now. We can't wait any longer. Man, can I tell you that sometimes if you think that you're going to wait to get right, one year can turn into 10 years. 10 years can turn into 50 years. And then throughout the generations, a thousand years might actually go by. And it's all because one man decided to wait to get right with God. Man, never wait to get right with God when he is telling you to do something. You must do it immediately. Also notice, they sent a proclamation from Beersheba to Dan. Does that strike anybody uh, as peculiar? Usually in the Bible it says that when they're gathering up the Israelites, it's from Dan to Beersheba. But here they send the proclamation from Beersheba to Dan. Man, it's almost like they started from the ground up. It's almost like they started from the worst. It's almost like they started from those who are the furthest away so that they can receive them. You guys remember last week our teaching about the East? Man, our God is such a God that he wants to reach those that are the furthest away from being in right shalom with him. How much do you think that we need to be focused on those that are the furthest away from the kingdom? That is why I'm convinced that Islam has been largely left out from the plan of God in all of the missionary statements of the church because they are too afraid to go to the worst of the worst. I'm saying this over and over again because I want you to get it. When you are receiving consecration from the Lord, 
Man, it causes a desire that you want to go to the hardest, the most unreached, the most unwilling. And then God will say, just like he said to Ezekiel to you, I am making your forehead just like Flint because you are going to an obstinate people. Man, I'm going to say tonight, let consecration rise in this room because the worst of the worst depend on it. Amen? Amen. Hey, let's pick up in verse 6 and read on to verse 9. At the king's command, couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king and from his officials which read, People of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you who are left, who have escaped from the land of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your, your fathers and brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their fathers, so that he made them an object of horror as you see. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. Submit to the Lord. Come to the sanctuary which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. If you return to the Lord, then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Now I want you to forget for a second the obvious ties to the couriers and Jesus sending out the 70. I want you to forget about that. We'll study that another time. I want you to take a look at what's written. What they sent out to these people. There's essentially five things that they wrote down. Four of them are commands. And then the fifth thing is what God would do if they were obedient. The first one is... Return to the Lord. Everybody say return. Return Return to the Lord. Not some new thing. Not some new system or new Samaritan idea. Not some new measure of discipleship or some new concept. Return to the Lord. Return to the old written way that you know of. Return to the old standard. The next thing is submit. Submit. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be obstinate anymore. Submit to the Lord. In Hebrew, it doesn't actually say submit. It says something along the lines of give your hand to the Lord. Which is like, give your hand to the Lord so He can take you in whatever direction He wants to take you and stop fighting against His direction. The next thing is, Come to the sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. Don't go anywhere you want. Don't think that there's any place that you can do this. Don't think that you can return to the Lord on your own terms or submit to God wherever you think you're called. Come to the sanctuary. Come to the one place that he sent his name. Come to the one place that you are supposed to be and where he has called you. Not anywhere you want, not just Well, I think I'm called here and I think I'm called that. No, come to the one place that he has designated for you to serve. The fourth thing is serve the Lord. Continue to to develop a lifestyle that is serving the Lord. Not Not him becoming your servant, not treating him as if he is there to give you what you want. You become his servant. And then the fifth thing that they mention... If you do these things, you will be shown compassion. You will be brought back. Man, essentially this is the gospel, isn't it? So many times we have our own ideas of the gospel. If you want to know what it is, read this. 
and insert it right into 1 Corinthians 15 and you have the gospel. The gospel is return to the Lord. Not some new thing. Return to the Lord. Even if you're speaking to a lost man, you tell him return to the original standard in which you are called to do. The gospel is submit to the Lord. Bend your will. Break your will. Whatever you have to do to submit to His reign on your life. The gospel is come to the sanctuary. Come to the one place that He has designated for you to stand. The gospel is to serve God. The Lord become a servant of Almighty God and never ever make yourself in the position where he has to serve you. That is the gospel. But we like to reduce the gospel to a couple simple points. And these are not simple points on a page. These are things that have to be lived out in an entire lifetime. Look, this is a call. What they're saying, these five things is a call to return to a standard. Not an acceptance to something new. In other words, it's not trying to convince people of something they have never heard before. For some reason, we think that the gospel and evangelism is just trying to convince something, somebody of something that they have never heard before. Like we're telling them something new and then when they don't understand it, we have to keep telling them new things. That's not what's happening here. This evangelism that they are doing is not just a means of winning converts. It is an invitation to discipleship. Everybody say that with me. Evangelism Evangelism is is an invitation invitation to discipleship. discipleship. That is what evangelism is. If you read through the Gospels, you read through the entire book, the Tanakh, you will find that the evangelism is inviting people to a way of life. Now look, all of yours, I I see some heads nodding like, yes, I agree with that. But I have heard so many times, I've been sitting there, listening, and people are like, man, I had such an amazing day today. I spoke to somebody at a gas station about tithing. Well, quite frankly, what good does that do? You guys are laughing, but I've heard many of you say that. I've heard people in this room, they're talking, man, I... Pray for somebody in the mall and they got filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, quite frankly, what good is that if it is not an invitation to discipleship? We often think that our random conversations that we're having all around town is evangelism and it's not. And, and yes, it is something to gloat in. Yes, somebody got filled with the Holy Spirit. But if they are not coming to be discipled, then what good is it? They'll just be like a leopard who was cleansed and never came back to say thank you. Uh, Evangelism is an invitation to discipleship. Do you guys want to know more about that? I'm going to hand out a few passages. Paul, you get Luke 5, 39. Rob, you get Matthew 9, 36 through 38. Gabe, you get 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5. Uh, I'm forgetting some names. Nick Rosales. You get Luke 2, 10, and that's it. Yeah, I know yours, Brother Linton. Brother Justin. Uh, Hayes, you're going to read Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. Assad, you're going to get Revelation 22, 17. JJ, you're going to get John 4, 35. Pick up in uh, Luke 5, 39. 
And no one after drinking old wine wants the new. For he says, the old is better. Yeah. Yes, it is. I'm going to tell you, that passage can't be read and understood enough. This passage can apply to every situation in your life, especially evangelism. Hezekiah is in a situation where he wants to return to the original standard. For a thousand years, men have been trying something new. For a thousand years, there's a new Samaritan way to worship. But what good has that brought? For a thousand years, there's always been new, 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 new. And now lions are eating the people and they're being deported by Assyrians. Hezekiah is saying, man, this new wine, it's not getting us anywhere. We're going to have to return to something old, original, OG. He's calling them to return to the standard that always was there. That is why in evangelism, presenting something as new is not the right way to go about it. When you're speaking, even if they have never heard the name Jesus Christ, you are bringing them up to something that they were born to live in. Something that has been around from long ago. Something that you didn't create and they didn't create or some pastor didn't create. Something that God instituted a long time ago. I want to tell you this process is one that has aged quite well over the last 4,000 years. This old wine has produced nothing but fiery, stirred up saints of God. And for some reason we kind of want to do away with it. You know, I think it's just because we don't want to live up to it. Who's got Matthew 9, 36 through 38? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now everybody quotes this passage, and I love it. But so few actually know what it's saying. He's not asking for you to pray in a prayer meeting. Lord, send workers to this church. Lord, send send harvesters here, Lord. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, ask the Lord to send out harvesters. Ask the Lord to send out workers from your midst. Ask the Lord to train up workers in your body so that you can send them out. Man, that's entirely different than sitting around like, Lord, send us some good disciples Lord, send us some lost people who are ready to work. No, he's saying, ask the Lord to be able to send out. Ask the Lord for the ability to send out. What that means is that the responsibility to find workers and train them falls on us. That is what evangelism looks like. You are having a hiring day. You are holding auditions for the workers in God's kingdom. When you are meeting people out on the street, you're looking and you're going, you're praying in the Holy Ghost and you're saying, is this person going to be a laborer or are they just going to come and sit and soak? This also means that we have to be involved in aging others like good winemakers. If we're to pray to send out more, then we have to be involved in that aging process, don't we? That means our discipleship in here, peer to peer and pastor to peer, has to look like that aging process that gives fermentation over time. Because again, we're not asking the Lord to send more workers. We're asking the Lord to send more workers out from our midst. Yeah. He's got 2 Timothy 4, 3-5. through five. For the time will come when men will... Wow, that turned too far. Not put up with sound doctrine. Instead... 
To suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Look, if you, if you survey the New Testament, you'll see that it says about Paul that in every city he won disciples, not decisions. He won disciples. Paul didn't go around and just feel good about himself because he talked to a few people and they go, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sinner, I need to get right. And then he prayed a prayer with them. Paul in every city won disciples. Jesus taught people, he taught his disciples to be fishers of men. Not catch and release. Fishers of men. He taught them to actually fish for men so that they can bring them back in. Not just catch the fish and never see them again. Look, to do the work of an evangelist is to ferment properly in discipleship like Timothy did and allow others to taste and see. That is what it looks that is what Paul is telling Timothy here. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. Well, I got something for you. Timothy was a pastor. How does a pastor do the work of an evangelist? Well, he ferments in that kind of old wine until his character develops. And then he allows others to taste and see what God is doing. That is what evangelism looks like. Walking in a way of life and inviting others to the way of life. Amen. Who's got Luke 2, 10 through 11? But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. This is uh, Pastor Zeke's inclusion to the uh, message tonight. And Pastor Zeke loves this word because he is a man who evangelizes. Look, in Greek, the word for good news is evangelism. It's evangelion in Greek. What is the good news about this passage? Well, the good news is not just that Jesus was born. You know, we talk about that during Christmas. We send out Christmas cards for unto us a child is born. Well, that's not quite the good news. The good news is that there is now an old standard wine for all men to drink from. The good news is that the old wine has miraculous powers to turn even nasty water, like ourselves, into something refined with depth and a good finish. That is the good news. And when we're presenting that, we need to start having this in our minds cemented. I find that those who do not participate in the way of life do not include a way of life in their evangelistic efforts. What they tend to do is go around all over town and just be happy that they mentioned the name Jesus to somebody and they didn't get slapped across the face. Look, we have to, if you are walking in a way of life, if you are cemented, if you're aging like that fermented wine, it needs to show up in our evangelism. When we're talking to people, yes, you want people to accept the gospel. You want them to repent on the spot of their sins. But more importantly, you're looking for them to come back and develop a way of life. Are you all starting to get that? Yeah. All right. Who's got Matthew 28, 18 through 20? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
If our evangelism is aimed at making sure someone understands your version of the gospel, then you have failed. Jesus, in explaining the Great Commission, says, therefore, go and make disciples. That is the Great Commission, to go and make disciples. So how good is our little 10-minute conversations that we feel good about and never see the person again? Look, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. This is not a matter whether or not you have this fruit. It all starts with what you're being directed at, okay? If, if people are not showing up, well, there's a good reason for that. They're sinners, and they probably don't want to. But in our speech, we need to start relaying a way of life. Are you all tracking? Look, if you never see that person after the conversation, then for all intents and purposes, that event did not bear fruit. You might have planted a seed, but that is the rare minority that someone is going to hear your conversation and then go shake the world for Jesus without you knowing about it. If someone gets baptized at the beach or filled with the Spirit at a filling station, but not started discipleship, then they did not receive the good news. If someone gets prophesied to at a passion conference or gets prayed for at the prison and did not get discipled, then they did not receive good news. If someone does not engage in the fermenting process that you are in, then your evangelism has become a cheap factory bottling new wine and mass that no one really enjoys. Wow. This is why we need to start bringing in that way of life. Who's got Revelation 22, 17? The spirit and bride don't say, hear this and go do whatever you want. The spirit and bride invite those who are thirsty to take part in what they are doing. This is a wedding story. You guys remember that from yesterday? This is a wedding story, one that will feature the finest wine and the best of age meats. And the spirit and the bride are calling to people, come be a part of what we are experiencing. That old wine. Who's got John 4.35? Do you not say four months more than the harvest? Mm. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Mm. Jesus is sitting with a woman from the regions that Hezekiah is writing to in this moment. While he is saying this, the woman is bringing people out of the town to meet Jesus. While he's saying these words, he's talking to his disciples. While she is bringing about everybody from that town, Jesus is telling his disciples, do not say four months more and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. How would you have felt if you were one of the disciples that looked at Jesus and was surprised that he was talking to a Samaritan woman? And then he looks at you and says, see, the harvest is already coming. Look, while the entire town is coming out, he tells the disciples, don't pray for the harvest to come. It's already there. What is missing are those that have been trained to collect the harvest. The Talmudim just watched their rabbi remind this woman of the old wine, and now he's challenging them to do do the same. Look, saints, what I'm saying tonight is in your evangelism. What's kind of stirring in my heart is I haven't evangelized enough recently as I'm studying this word. When I'm looking at, hey, the consecrated and the cleansed want to invite others to to where they're at, I don't, I don't even want to ask when's the last time you shared the gospel with somebody. Because I know in the room it's probably gotten a little bit too far and few between. Like it has in my life. But the truth is, is we need to invite others 
as we're being consecrated to the way of life that we're experiencing. And that is evangelism. Saints, tonight we need to return to returning to the Lord. We need to submit to the Lord. We need to station ourselves at the temple where He's told us. We need to serve the Lord. This, in, this is the essence of the old wine in all of its fine, fermented, and flavorful aspects. When we undertake this process of discipleship, we will see the harvest taken in. Amen. When we are engaging ourselves to the way of life, doing what we know we must do to be discipled, we're going to naturally see this harvest come in. Because what we're going to naturally do is invite them. Don't let your evangelism become impotent because you are stale in the fermentation of your discipleship. Oh, come on, bro. If your evangelism has become stale, it's probably because your discipleship has become stale. Yeah, the more you move forward in that process, you'll find your evangelistic life flourishing. And you will notice that you want to talk to people more often. Not that you have to. I'm, I'm tired. I hate hearing those stories where God told me to talk to that person, but... You know, I, I just didn't want to, and it was a struggle for me. No, we need to start praying and getting on our faces that God would change us so much that we want, we are compelled to go share with them. Like Pastor Zeke said this weekend, it's time to keep a tight lid on the te tedious details of our aging process. Right now is time to focus on every little detail of our lives so we can be the flavorful wine that the world is looking for. Do you guys want to do that? Yes. Then let's continue in verse 10, and we're going to read to 12. The couriers went from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulun, but the people scorned and ridiculed them. Nevertheless, some of the men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. Also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered Following the word of the Lord. Amen. Man, when the people have unity of mind in anything, anything. I mean, if, if the people could have unity of mind in just choosing where to go eat after Sunday, the kingdom of hell would quake with fear. <laughs> Look, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind to carry out. I want to show you what the Hebrew says about that. The Hebrew says to give them one heart to do the commandment. One heart. Not just unity in their thoughts, but one heart doing everything together. Man, just like Jonathan said to David, I am with you in soul and in heart. I am with you 100%. My heart is your heart. Look, as we preached on in the past, the goal for the people of God is not to become some parts old wine and others new. The goal for this church is not to have some people engaging in this process while others are left unattended. The goal is for the entire body, say entire body, entire body. to be unified in mind, heart, vision, mission, goal, whatever you want to say. Notice that while there were some that had one heart, others were ridiculing and scorning. Did y'all see that? Yeah. Unfortunately, this is all too common in every body or every church that we see. While some are experiencing the power of the old wine, others are entertaining themselves on the dregs while all the while scorning those that want to purely advance the kingdom. Man, what I want to say to you tonight, be on the side that's enjoying the old wine. Let them ridicule, let them scorn because you are one heart with the people of God. Don't be on the side that is scorning and ridiculing the side that's enjoying the old wine. That's how you find yourself in new wine category. 
I want to encourage you with Romans 15, 5 through 6. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason that there is one standard, the old standard, is so that we can be unified. Thank God all we have is just one standard to get to, right? Thank God, I mean, thank God all we have is one standard to attain to. It should be pretty easy. Those that won't follow Christ, did you see how it says unity among you as you follow Christ? Those that won't follow won't be in unity. If you ever notice the people that just cannot get in unity, the people that are, you know, warn those that cause divisions amongst you, it's because they don't want to follow Christ. If there ever is a break in unity between you and a brother, it's because there's a break in following Jesus. And we've got to get that right first. I also want to encourage you from Colossians 3.12 through 16. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace or shalom of Christ, rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Man, say that with me. And be, be thankful. thankful. Look, those that rest, the reason why there is divisions, the reason why there's ridicule, ridiculing and scorning, and, and I get it, it may not be in your speech, but have any of you been ridiculing and scorning inside of you? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Has any of you just gotten a correction and you go away ridiculing and scorning? Yeah. You might not have said it, but it's fomenting out of your heart. All this results in a lack of shalom inside of you. The reason why quarreling exists is because of lack of shalom. Yeah. The reason why there's fighting between wives and husbands is because there's a lack of shalom. Starting from the top down, going all throughout the family. Look, be thankful. Instead of, instead of complaining about the type of wine, be thankful about it and you'll begin to enjoy it. Amen. Be thankful about the wine that God has given this church. And I promise, the more, that you are, the more that you are exuding thankfulness out of your mouth towards what God has given you, you will, you will find less and less ridiculing and scorning. Man, that applies to every situation in this room. Every situation. If you find yourself complaining, wondering why, God, why are you doing this in my life? Why am I in this position? Why am I in the place that I'm in? Replace that with thankfulness and you'll see that problem disappear wow. really quick. <laughs> I'm learning this in my own life and home. Amen. Hey, let's pick up in verse 13 and go on to 14. A very large crowd of people assembled in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of unleavened bread in the second month. They removed the altars in Jerusalem. And cleared away the incense altars and threw them into the Kidron Valley. Man, this is not just the priests. This is not just the Levites. A very large crowd of people assembled. And they're starting to tear some stuff down, aren't they? They're getting all that stuff and they're bringing it to hell where it belongs. Look, what started as individual consecration turned into corporate and national consecration. Look, you want revival in America? 
I hear all the time, man, things are really bad in America. You want to know how to fix that? Start with personal consecration. Do you know that many revivals in history started with one man praying in repentance? Started in one man crying out to God, God, change me. And then an entire town heard him crying out and and, uh, felt convicted. Man, personal consecration is a powerful thing. When you really get right with the Lord, when you know that you know that you know that you're getting every area of your life and your heart right, that's powerful. And it allows the kind of power to come out of you where national corporate consecration can occur. Look, what's incredible, what, what I love about this is they're bringing in people from other parts of, of, of Israel. They sent out this letter saying, hey, return to the Lord, and people are starting to come in. Evangelism is taking effect. New people are walking through the doors, and they're starting to get right with the Lord. You know what that does for a body? Look, we, we've seen so many times that new disciples, I remember when Linton and Bim came into the church, you know what that caused me to do? It caused me to get my heart right because I'm seeing new people get, get their hearts right. Look, I want to tell you a secret, okay? Bringing in more disciples strengthens the body to become more holy. When the body is engaged in the right kind of evangelism, when every person, not just pastor, prophet, evangelist, teacher, and, and apostle are doing their job, when every person is doing their job in evangelism, the harvest comes. And when the harvest comes, it has an awesome way of getting the people of God right. Have you ever been witnessing to somebody and you're just sharing the gospel? You're like, man, I'm really getting it. You know, I am really sharing the gospel better than I've ever shared. And then you walk and that person gets right with the Lord and they begin to repent. And then it causes you when you're driving away. And I, I need to get right so I can do this more. Has that ever happened? I know I'm not the only one. Look, evangelism has a beautiful process in it. When you are focused on building up the body of Christ you become more like Christ. When you are focused on building up the body, it does something in you and makes you more holy. Hey, it's time to get focused on evangelism. Amen? Amen. All right, verse 15 to verse 17. They slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. The priests and Levites were ashamed and consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings to the temple of the Lord. Then they took up their regular positions as prescribed in the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests sprinkled the blood handed to them by the Levites. Since many in the crowd had not been consecrated themselves, the Levites had to kill the Passover lambs for all those who were not ceremonially clean, and they could not consecrate their lambs to the Lord. Man, it's crazy. Those priests were ashamed and consecrated themselves. Then they took up regular positions. Now, I don't know if you noticed something, but they didn't quite take up regular positions, though. And you're going to see that in a second. What's happening here is it's all happening so fast. The Levites are the one who are sacrificing the animals, which Levites don't do. Priests do that. Levites don't do that. The Levites are the ones sacrificing the animals and then handing the blood to the priests so the priests can sprinkle it. It's the priest's job to sacrifice the animals. Look, Rashi states that they did not consecrate themselves, the priests, Because they felt unneeded during Ahaz's reign. In other words, Ahaz went out and found himself a new priesthood. And he looked at those priests and said, yeah, they didn't really have jobs anymore. And because they didn't have jobs anymore, they kind of just 
didn't do anything, it looks like. And then when the time actually comes to serve the Lord, Ahaz comes in and says, hey, it's time to get right with God. It's time to get real about Jesus. Now the priests are like, oh my God. They're ashamed because they weren't right already. Man, priests, don't get comfortable because you may feel unneeded. You are always needed. Just because a wicked king reigns that does not make your job not needed. It's important to always stay consecrated. Look, what's happening here is the priests couldn't sacrifice because they weren't consecrated. The people could not sacrifice because they weren't consecrated. It's the people's job on Passover to bring their own lamb and kill it themselves. But they could not do that because they weren't consecrated. Because of this, the ordinary, common Levites jump in to do the work. Come on, say jump in. Jump in. The Levites were the ones that took up their ordinary positions. Not the priests, not the people, the ordinary, everyday, common Levite. Do I have any Levites in this room? The Levites were the ones that took up. They're the ones that jumped in. And by the way, how did the Levites become Levites? Because because Moses said, if anyone's for the Lord, come and stand next to me. And they rose to the occasion. The Levites took up their ordinary positions, assisting both the priests, which was their job, and assisting the people, which was their job. Man, I want to tell you, that's why we are raising up Levites in this house the way that we are, to both assist the priests and to assist the people. You just raised your hand. You said, man, I'm a Levite in the house of God. Then what's your job? To rise up and assist the priests in what they are supposed to do. And to rise up and assist the people so that they can sacrifice. That's why we're raising up Levites in this room. To be a bridge. To be a bridge between the priests and the people. To also be a safeguard. Do you realize the Levites, the ordinary common Levites are the ones that stepped up when the priests failed? Man, everyday common Levites are a safeguard to the priests. Amen. Priests aren't perfect. Priests aren't perfect anywhere. Now that's more obvious in Lakewood Church. But priests aren't perfect anywhere. And there are times when priests need to consecrate themselves. But you know what happens when a priest is consecrating himself? If a priest has raised up faithful Levites, while he's consecrating himself, he has Levites around him who will jump in until that priest gets consecrated. Look, I want to tell you Levites in this room, it's important to do your job because these men might depend on you. If these men need to consecrate themselves for a second, who's going to jump in and make the sacrifice? We are. That is why we have to be diligent in the tedious things that God is. That's why we don't take breaks because we don't feel needed. Just because Ahaz tells us, man, I don't need you anymore. Because we feel unneeded anymore, that's why we don't take breaks. Your emotions of not feeling needed do not constitute how much you actually are needed. Because you never know when a priest might need to consecrate himself and turn around and you're right there. Man, I can't tell you how helpful, I mean, these pastors can't tell you how helpful it is to have consecrated Levites in this room to be a safeguard. The next thing that Levites are, are a standard. Everybody comes into this church, when people walk through the doors, the first thing that they do not see is the priest. Usually they're studying the the word in the back. You know who they see? The common Levites. We need the common Levites to rise up in this room. Amen? Amen. 
All right, verse 18 to 20. Although most, although most of the many people who came from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover, contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the Lord, who is good, pardon everyone who sets his heart on seeking God, mm. the Lord, the God of his fathers. Even if he is not clean according to the rules of the sanctuary, and the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I was reading this, I was like, ah, I, I don't know, man. That sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, they, they clearly did what the written word of God said not to do. And it says it. It says they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. Doesn't that strike any of you? They ate contrary to what is written, and yet God healed them. Well, that's interesting. I mean, do you think God just kind of overlooked the offense? I mean, what's really going on here? What they did was absolutely wrong. What they're doing is not right. The Word of God says that they have to be consecrated before they eat. They were unclean, and they were unpure, and apparently that caused a sickness. Almost like Paul writing... You are not eating the feast of the Lord rightly. That's why some of you have fallen ill. They're getting sick because they're not doing this rightly. And yet God chose to heal them. Why would God do that? Why would God choose to heal them even though they were clearly wrong with it? You think it might have been better for God just to let them sit in it for a little while? No, there's something at work here. While this is not an endorsement on their sinful state... This is a testimony to the facet of God's character, and we often miss what God is doing here. Y'all want to dig into that? Yes. I'm going to hand out a few passages. Uh, Chris, you read Proverbs 21.2. Uh, Timo, you get Mark 2.23-24. Uh, Josiah, you're going to get Matthew 15.1-2, and that's it. Yeah. All a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord evaluates the motives. All a man's ways seem right to him. All a man's ways seem right to anyone else. But the Lord weighs the heart. And your version said motive. The Lord is the one that weighs the heart. The Lord can see heart and motive before the action ever was committed. And oftentimes we have trouble seeing our own heart and motive in actions, but God does not. He sees what is going on here and he realizes that there's something happening. Look, although they were breaking the command, what did it say about them? Their hearts were set on seeking God. Does that strike any of you as strange? You would think that their heart was set on seeking God and so therefore they would obey the command. But there's something going on here. They had not been able to celebrate Passover for a very long time. And they're trying to get right. They are trying to seek after God. And therefore they're in a hurry. And they're trying to do it so quickly. They did break a command. But it says about them that their hearts were set on seeking Him. Now I hear people all the time. They're like, well, you know, I was just trying to seek God. And that's why I did what I did. No, that is not true. You did what you did because you were not seeking God and you wanted something that your flesh desired. But that's not what's going on here. 
Remember that these are people that are coming in as a result of an evangelistic call and their hearts are set on seeking God. Man, I see Christians misunderstand this all the time. When they see new disciples being raised up, God does something beautiful inside of a disciple and others who are more mature can't help but to notice all the areas that that disciple is getting wrong. Look, they're coming in and they're clearly wrong, but God sees that they're trying to get it right. And he chooses to heal them. I see that so, so, so often. People come in and, you know, they'll come in and they'll be at the altar and they're getting filled with the Holy Spirit or they're praying and something. They're like, like, oh, Jesus. And then an expletive comes out of their mouth and all of us kind of like, like, but he can't say that. But you don't see that he's trying to get right with God. And we tend to have that little judgment factor in there. Look, Mark 2, 23 through 24 is along that same line. Who's got it? Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with this Jesus of Nazareth? Have you... Nope. nope. Mark 2, 23. It's on the screen if you want to read from the screen. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now the problem here is that the Pharisees misunderstood the command of the Sabbath. And Jesus plainly shows that. But the situation applies the same. They are critical in nature, yet overlooking the, desire, the, the disciples' desire to seek after God. They are literally following God in flesh and everyone around them is so critical at what they think that they are doing wrong. Now, listen, I got to tell you, I've struggled with that over the years, having a critical nature and looking at people. But I got to I got to tell you, God doesn't see what we see. God sees people who are trying to get right with God. And you know what he does? He heals them. He heals them. And that healing process keeps going and they start to get all the way right. Who's got Matthew 15, one through two? Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands when they eat. <laughs> Look, those that fail to seek God themselves will eventually succumb to criticism that favors traditions over commands. Yeah, I don't need to go into how many people came to this church critical about this church, and yet they were being saved by this church. Wow. <laughs> but don't fall into the situation where people are coming in. And we're critical of those coming in. Those that come in, perhaps God brought them here for a reason and they really want to seek after God. Look, in that time, it wasn't possible to eat the Passover in Ahaz's reign because the doors were closed. The temple doors were closed. They couldn't do it. So these people wanted to do it as soon as possible. They had an urgency in them. Have you ever seen someone come in and man, they are just urgent. They've got to get right with God. And then you're like, man. I haven't had an urgency to get right like that since I came here. (laughs) Don't let that cause you to be critical of them. Let that cause you to be urgent in the areas that you need to get right. But we often do are so insecure in the areas that we need to get right that we criticize everything that everyone else is doing, even though they're trying to get right. You know where this shows up the most, though? This shows up the most when we're receiving correction from somebody and we don't like the way they said it and we're critical how they said it even though they are seeking after God and giving you the correction. Man, we need to be careful. 
Look, the point is that they were healed. Not because they were justified by their own traditions or misunderstanding of the command. They were not healed because they took a position that said, yeah, I was wrong, but you know what? I'm here anyway and I'm doing it. They were not healed because they stood on a bad, a bad position and tried to defend it. They were healed because they were seeking after God. And you know what the Hebrew says? They sought God with whole hearts. Their entire heart was directed after seeking God. And so God is just that big enough that he can look and say, you know what? They broke a command here, but I'm going to allow it because I know what I'm going to do inside them later. Man, that's powerful, isn't it? Sometimes when you just seek God enough, you don't have to worry about all the peripheral things in your life. God will get that done inside of everybody in the church. I've seen so many times someone wants to, who can I pick on? Someone wants to go up to Rob and they're just like, man, he's got all this goofy stuff and I, I just don't know what in the world Rob is doing. But if their heart was seeking God, they would see that Rob is seeking God with his whole heart. And as he seeks God with his whole heart, God is changing him daily. God is changing him every single day. We need to start looking at everybody else in this room that way and start looking at other people that way. Because I want to tell you, when you promote that kind of seeking after God, it's infectious. When you are seeking after the Lord and he's changing everything inside of you, people will want to come seek the Lord and he'll change them too. Did you want to say something, Pastor? Yeah. Uh, if you guys will notice in verse 18 of Second Chronicles 30, Hezekiah is praying for them. May the Lord, who is good, pardon everyone. He's not even making bones about it that they're not doing it in the right way. But the king is showing mercy and saying, Lord, you are good. May you pardon their errors, those who set their hearts on seeking God. Justin's point is here is that we shouldn't be looking with a critical eye. I'm going to ask you to take it one step further. You should be looking with a discerning eye and being able to say, Lord, yeah. you are good. Would you please pardon them because we know that you need to pardon us. Yeah. We're not defending our wrong. We're actually crying out that other people may get right with the Lord because they're setting their heart on him. Yeah. I've also seen this show up in young disciples that just want to correct everybody. Like they feel good about themselves if they can correct everybody else on peripheral issues. And yet they, don't, they can't seek God enough to know what that person needs to get all those issues right. You know, sometimes a uh, problem with money in someone's life, sometimes a problem with alcohol in someone's life is not just a problem of alcohol. Maybe it's a problem with insecurity. But if we actually seek God enough, he'll show that to you. Yeah. Won't he? Look. I am a living testimony that this has occurred in my life. There are many times these pastors could have ripped me for thousands of things and didn't do that. They address one thing and they let God heal everything else around that. And I bet if you were to look inside your lives, lives, you would see that God, that these pastors have done the same for you as well. How dare we want to criticize everybody else about everything in their life? Just found on one central principle that is and that is give them what they need, not what they deserve. Mm-hmm. That's pastoring their hearts. Amen. Yeah. Um, and I kind of think we have a good grasp on this concept in this body. And yet it still shows up in weird ways, like when a correction's given. You know, we, we're, 
critical of the person that gives it, even though that person might have prayed for hours struggling with how you would receive it. Look, any criticism, we're going to get it out tonight in the name of Jesus, right? We're going to start seeking God with our whole hearts. And when we do that, we'll start to see everybody around us is doing the same thing. Amen. Hey, let's pick up in verse 21. This is going to get good. You guys ready? The Israelites who were present in Jerusalem celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days with great rejoicing. While the Levites and the priests sang to the Lord every day, accompanied by the Lord's instruments of praise. Look, we're not going to camp out too much on that, but I think it's kind of awesome. It says they were accompanied by the Lord's instruments of praise. Like, did God just drop in a, a Jimi Hendrix electric guitar from the sky or something? I don't know. But I do know this. Last week it said they did this with David's instruments. They had David's instruments laying around. And these might be the same instruments. I'm not sure. But it could be that they're David's instruments that were always the Lord's instruments because he gave them to David. And now they're playing with the Lord's instruments. But you know what this says in Hebrew? It's a little bit different. It's not the Lord's instruments. It calls them instruments of strength. It calls them powerful instruments. Man, I think that's awesome. That's almost like our worship shouldn't be directed by some light and affectionate little soft violin and harp playing. It's almost like when people get right with God, man, the heavy metal worship of God comes out. The masculine driven worship of the warrior like God that we serve comes out. I think that's extraordinary, isn't it? Now, be honest with you, in a scholarly perspective, that probably is a Hebrew idiom for just they played loudly. But I'm going to call them instruments of strength. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pick up in verse 22 and uh, keep going. Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites and showed good understanding of the service of the Lord. Mm. For For the seven days, they ate their assigned portion and offered fellowship offerings and praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. Man, Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good understanding. Look, the Hebrew for good understanding is Strong's number 7919. It does mean good understanding. This is uh, a Bible dictionary, a lexicon that we pulled up. That Hebrew's word is sakal. And it means it's a verb to act with insight. To be prudent, to give insight, to act with devotion, to show understanding. They're not just demonstrating a knowledge of something. They are acting with devotion. They are giving insight. They are acting with insight. So it's not just to have something in their brain. It is an action that they are doing. I want you to read that bottom with me. It says, in the causative form... Sakal denoted God's actions to Solomon if he observed what the Lord required and walked in his ways. If this pattern were followed, the Lord would prosper Solomon. So this word can be translated as insight, skill, or devotion. But there is a thought that I want you to capture here. The word in and of itself speaks to the kind of skill or the kind of insight Or the kind of understanding or the kind of devotion that always results in victory. This is not just a knowledge. 
that just is there and doesn't lend to anything. This is an insight into God's way of life that always results in victory. It always has a result in something that is prosperous. So I want to take you down a path and I want to show you this Hebrew word and also the Greek cognate is the same. I want to show you this Hebrew word through a number of passages. Y'all want to get into that? So I actually I have them in slides for you. So there's a few passages. We're going to put them on the screen and I'm not going to hand them out. I'm going to show you where that word is. So this is Deuteronomy 32 verse 7. It says, remember the days of old, consider the generations long past, ask your father and he will tell you your elders and they will explain it to you. That word consider is the word sakal in Hebrew. This is the same thing that those Levites had. But when you think of it right here in Deuteronomy 32, it's a little bit different than just sitting around and considering, isn't it? It's remember the days of old. Consider. Get insight that leads to victory. Get understanding that will lead you to the ultimate goal of victory in Christ. Get that from the generations long ago. Ask your father and he will tell you how to get this insight that leads to victory. Ask your elders and these elders will give you the insight. They will explain it to you. Man, to get this kind of skill... To get this kind of understanding, to get this kind of insight that leads to victory, you've got to ask your fathers for it. You can't develop it on your own. You can't get it out of nowhere. You can't just pop out of the womb and say, I'm ready to drink old wine. You have got to ask your fathers to get the kind of skill that leads to victory. Now, there's a, there's a simple reason why that occurs. Well, I go to Baj and ask him how to get that kind of skill that leads to victory. Because I see him living in victory. I see him living in victory and therefore I go, yeah, I got to get that from him. But most importantly, God designated that so that generations are dependent upon one another. Let's go to Joshua 1, 6 through 7. It says, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land. I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Rock Kazak Bamas. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate it, meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Interesting, the translators chose that same Hebrew word to write successful. That's because it's an insight that leads to victory. They didn't say that you may be insightful wherever you go, so that you may have understanding wherever you go. No, they said so that you may be successful wherever you go. Look, those, to have this kind of insight that leads to success depends on how careful You obey the standard. It depends on how careful you are to, in this passage, obey the law. How do you become, how does Joshua become victorious everywhere he goes? How does he have the insight to become a victorious man? Well, he keeps the book of the law that Moses handed down always with him. It's always referred to something in the past. 
This kind of success comes from holding the old standard and asking fathers. Now we're going to go to Daniel 12, 2 through 3. I'm going to pick up in verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the depths of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life. Others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness. Like the stars forever and ever. Again, same Hebrew word. It's saying that those who have the insight. Not just wise. Not just gray headed people who know things about things. It says those who have insight that leads to victory will shine like the brightness of the heavens. Man, that's almost like Philippians 2.15 saying, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may shine like stars. You know how you do everything without complaining or arguing? You better have an insight that leads to victory. That's how you do that. You won't get to victory complaining and arguing. Daniel 12, verse 8 through 10. He says, I heard but did not understand. He's talking with the angel. The angel's giving him a revelation for the end times. He says, I heard, but I did not have an insight that leads to victory. So I asked, my Lord, what will be the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless, and refined. If you think that refining is anything other than suffering, you're wrong. But the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will have insight that leads to victory. But those who are wise will have insight that leads to victory. Look at first, Daniel didn't have this insight, but the angel tells him to go. In the going, he gains that insight that leads to victory. In the following, he gains that insight. He then adds that the righteous will be purified and refined while the wicked won't have the insight. The righteous will have the insight that leads to victory, but they will suffer and be persecuted. They will fall for a time, some translations say, but they will get back up. Look, those that are righteous that have insight into victory, doesn't matter what persecution comes their way. They always get back up. The righteous will because they will ask the fathers and obey the standard. Let's go to Exodus 36, 1 through 2. Again, you see that word in yellow. So Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord has what? Commanded. Then who summons him? Moses. Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given the ability and who was willing to come and work. Look, when Bezalel is introduced in the scriptures, he's the only man that says about him that God himself filled him with the spirit. Moses didn't have to put his hands on him. God did that. He was filled with the spirit of God and he was skilled unto success because he operated in unity and under the direction of Moses to replicate the pattern. That God gave to Moses. Are you starting to see that pattern come up again and again? I want to land right here in Nehemiah 8, 12-13. Again, the word is in yellow. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy. Because they now had insight, skill, understanding, wisdom, 
that led to victory. The words had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. Look in Nehemiah, what's happening? Well, there's been a destruction in the rebuilding the temple. In Hezekiah's time, there's been a lot of menstrual filth, and they have to rebuild the temple. In Nehemiah, the people went away with great joy because they now had an insight that gave skill and success. Man, i got to tell you, when you get that insight, when you ask your fathers, when you look at the elders, I've had many situations in my life where I have no idea what to do. Like 99% of the time, I have no idea what I'm doing. And I go to Baj or Matt or Wade or Charlie, and I'm like, hey, what do I do in this situation? And they give insight that leads to victory. Amen. Man, great joy comes out of that. Yeah. Great joy comes out of when I have no idea what I'm doing. And you ask a father, and now you know how to get victory. The people are going away with great joy because Ezra's giving them that insight. They received this insight that gave victory from Ezra. And Ezra was a man that had insight that gave to great victory. But Ezra did not learn this from a vacuum. He studied the law diligently. Say diligently. And he pointed others to the old standard. He learned the standard from his fathers and created unity by that standard that he learned. Somebody say the old wine is better. The old wine is better. By the way, you see Ezra doing this? Ezra's a man with insight unto success, and he's teaching them insight unto success. Who wrote the book of Chronicles? Ezra. Perhaps Ezra's able to do, it his, do that in his day because he's reading about the Levites in Hezekiah's day who had insight unto success. Ezra was able to perform in his historical context what he learned from the Levites in Hezekiah's day. Look, young men, everybody in this room, everything that you knew before you came to this church, it's time to throw that away. What we have, what we need to know is sitting right here in this room. These fathers have done it already. And just like Ezra, they have looked back to men who have done it before them. It's an unbroken chain of discipleship. And that is how they're able to give us insight unto success. Amen. By the way, it should be plain. Insight that does not lead to success is not insight at all. Amen. So if you have an insight on something that you haven't mastered or gotten success in, don't share it. Amen. If you think you've got insight on something and you have not mastered what you're talking about, don't share it. Man, that's a good word. I, I'm learning that myself. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's pick up in verse... 12. Verse 12? Yeah. You know where to go. No, no, no. Hold on. No, I want to tie a few things for you. That's why I got confused. Look, I want, I want to show you what's going on. Hezekiah is encouraging the Levites because they had insight that led to success. I want to, I want to read verse 12 to you of the same. Actually, one of you read it. Who's going to read that? Verse 12, 2 Chronicles 30. Also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered, following the word of the Lord. What's going on is that they have one heart. The Levites also have insight that lead to success. Look, the hand of the Lord was on the people to give them one heart. 
This is because the Levites demonstrated skill that led to success. They learned these things from the standard of the law and the testimony of their fathers. And this is what allowed evangelism to flourish in Hezekiah's day as well as Ezra's day. You should see those two things put together. Insight leading to success and great unity. Here and now, we need the everyday, ordinary, and average Levite to rise up. Say, rise up. Rise up. And call out to their fathers. Look to the law of God and gain insight that leads to success. I want to hand out one passage and then we're going to be done with the insight that leads to success in reading only. And then we're going to practice it. Uh, Hayes, you're going to read 2 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. Well, that's a good word. We, however, will not... You got it. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves by themselves, they are not having insight that leads to success. Wow. Look, we need to compare ourselves with our fathers and the law. We cannot, say cannot, cannot, compare ourselves to ourselves. Now, I, that doesn't usually go through your mind when you're doing that, but that is what you're doing when you start to say things like, well, you know, I've been pretty victorious in the past. I don't really think I need to listen here. Or man, you know, I've been, pretty, I've been doing pretty good recently. I don't think I need to pray through the tabernacle. Or man, I... I uh, I know about this scripture pretty well. I think I know everything about it. I don't need to listen when it's quoted from the stage anymore. We cannot resort to our own thoughts, emotions, or ideas for ourselves. When we result on anything that you think about yourself, when when someone's sharing anything and you're like, yeah, I've heard that before, you are measuring yourself by yourself, and that is not leading to an insight that brings success. You will never get to an insight that leads to success By thinking you already know what to do. You will never get insight that leads to success by going, I think I'm going to do this because it feels right to me. How you get that is you ask your fathers and they give you to the insight that leads to success. Everybody say to the law and to the testimony. That is how we get insight and success. Y'all want to be successful? Yes. We're going to have to get that insight. Let's pick up and read in verse 23 and we're going to keep going. The whole assembly then agreed to celebrate the festival seven more days. So for another seven days, they celebrated joyfully. Now, I love that. I don't know what it means. I'm sure some of you Bible scholars do. But I love that they celebrated seven more days. Man, it's like they're like, man, things are getting right. Let's just keep doing it. Yeah, Yeah, we're already here. We're fellowshipping. We might as well just keep fellowshipping. I I love that. If things are going good, don't stop them. If things are going great in your life, do not stop doing what you're doing for that to happen. Keep doing it. Seven more days is needed. Seven days might be perfect in and of itself. But to be honest, who has enough of what they want? Do you want more of the Lord? Sometimes seven more days is needed. Amen? Amen. Let's do 24 through 25. Hezekiah, king of Judah, provided a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep and goats for the assembly. And the officials provided them with a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep and goats. A great number of priests consecrated themselves. The entire assembly of Judah rejoiced, along with the priests and the Levites, 
and all who had assembled from Israel, including the aliens who had come from Israel and those who lived in Judah. Now, these aliens aren't those things that are planting those monoliths everywhere in Utah and stuff. <laughs> these are the foreigners who have come in from those letters being sent out. Look, here we see priests. We see Levites. We see king. We see the great assembly. And we even see aliens. Everybody, as a result of what's happening in the consecration, the entire nation is getting right altogether. Man, that's beautiful, isn't it? What I love the most is that while they're all getting right, the king is providing the sacrifices for all who needed consecration. Man, that reminds me of 1 Chronicles 29, 14 through 15. We're going to put that on the screen and then read it together. (laughs) David says, But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. Man, the king provided sacrifices for the people. You know, you say, but I didn't show up with anything to give. I didn't show up with anything on the mission trip. No, your God will give you something. He will put it in your hand for you to give. Everything that you have right now, say everything. Everything Everything that you have, God has put it in your hand to sacrifice. There is nothing that is in your disposal that God hasn't put there for you to sacrifice for something. Nothing that we have comes from ourselves. In fact, Deuteronomy warns, when you go into the land and you you living in the land, do not think to yourselves, I have gained all of this by my own right hand. In so deceiving yourselves into thinking that you do not need to follow my commands. Everything that is given to you is by the Lord's hand. And everything God will give you will come from His hand. The best thing to do is to be taking in things and sacrificing them with the next hand. And as you do that, the Lord will give you more to sacrifice. Do you want to sacrifice more? I surely do want to sacrifice more. Hey, let's pick up in verse 26 through 27 and then we're going to close it out. There was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the days of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them, for their prayer reached heaven, his holy dwelling. Man, their prayer reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. Look, after the entire ordeal, the priests and the Levites, along with the people of God, were right with God. Everybody at this point is right together. They got right together as the multitudes were brought in who needed to get right. As people were being brought in to get right, it caused the other people to get right. What was happening is it's happening on such a fast paced level that the priests who are not consecrated, they're like, hey, I've got to get I got to get consecrated because there are sacrifices to be made for these people. What's happening here is there are so many sacrifices. The priests are looking around and they're saying, I can't stay the same because they depend on me to get right. Look, there is something that happens. I mentioned this earlier, but there is something that happens when there is a great need in the body. When there is a great need in the body, it causes priests who are not right with God to get right fast. Look, when when there is repentance going on in this place... And you're not a priest who's right with God. You definitely want to get right in that moment, right? 
When someone is at the altar and they're like revealing the deepest, darkest things in their hearts. Man, you kind of want to get right with them, don't you? Look, when sinners are coming through these doors and they are getting cleansed by the power of the Holy Spirit, there's something that that does for you. This is why evangelism and building up the body is so important. Look, participation in building the bride with the right tools causes you to become like the groom. The pastors taught a message yesterday that we can become like the groom. That was encouraging, right? Man, it's good news that we can become like him. Sometimes it doesn't look like it. Sometimes it seems like he is such a perfect groom and we are such a failing spouse and we don't know how we can ever get there. No, the truth is we can become like him. But you know how you get there? Participation in building up the bride. When your focus is on building up the rest of the bride, when you're participating in evangelism and adding to the bride the people that need to be be there, that's something that encourages the growth inside of you to become more like the groom. Has any of you ever taken a mission trip and you just, you know, you're, you're struggling, you're kind of dry and dead, and then you get on the mission field and you come back home and you're all fired up and feel close to Jesus? Has that ever happened inside? Am I the only one? No. That's because participation in building up the bride makes you more like the groom. Man, how important is it to always be participating in building up the bride then? Look, while we're here, while we are all assembled together, we should not be looking for our own interests, but we should be looking to build others up. As I look to build up Linton, which I'm working on it, like I, I really am working on it. I am the type of man who is so selfish that I think all of, I, sometimes I think that everybody is placed here for my calling, right? I know I'm not the only one. When I actually fo- focus on building up Linton, or when I focus on building up Rob, or when I focus on building up my kids, it actually makes me closer to the goal that I'm trying to achieve. Yeah. When I am participating in building his bride, I'm becoming like him. You want to know why? Because that's what he's doing. Amen. Jesus is constantly building up his bride, even right now. And you see that in this chapter. Amen. As they are taking in an influx of people in evangelism, they're getting right at the same time. Man, that's amazing, isn't it? Yes. You, you might not know what it would do if you could just actually go out and share your faith with someone else. It might actually cause you to become more like the groom. Look, I want to read a couple passages, and then we're going to end. I want to read John 4, 34 through 35. This is Jesus speaking with the Samaritan woman, and he says, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The disciples are coming. They're saying, hey, you want to eat something? He's like, no, I'm getting something to eat right now. I am doing what the Father told me to do. In Hebrews 5.8, it tells us that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Look, the reason why Jesus suffered was to build up the body. The reason why Jesus suffered was to add to his bride. It was to build up the body according to the old standard under the, under the direction of the Father. That is why Jesus suffered. And if you're going to suffer in Christ, that's why you are going to suffer too. The suffering is for building up the body and building up the bride. When you go across land and sea to get to Iraq and you just got to minister the gospel to somebody and you die, well, you did it building up the bride. 
When you are in the church and you are, man, you are struggling like finances are hard, but you are here and you're giving words of encouragement to other people in the body and you're praying for people and you're getting words and you're sharing and you're, you're building up your children, you are building up the bride. This is how Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered and he did it for building up the bride. That's how we learn obedience too, is suffering for the bride. I want to read the last passage. It's Philemon 6. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. You know, I'm pretty sure that that word understanding is insight that leads to victory. Being active in sharing your faith doesn't mean you have to go to India. Doesn't mean you have to go. There might be somebody right outside these doors that needs you to share your faith. We might walk outside and across the street there is someone who wants to seek God but doesn't know how. There might be someone in this room right now who is desperate for a word of encouragement and you might be the person to give it. When you are active in sharing your faith, as you are active, you're gaining an insight that leads to victory. That's incredible, isn't it? You grow in understanding. You grow in becoming like the groom with insight that leads to victory as you are active. Actively building according to the standard, the old wine will cause you to have a full insight that leads to victory. If you want more full insight tonight, you might need to be a little bit more active in sharing. (laughs) Sometimes think that we become less active and just focus on ourselves, focus on building up our own home and whatever, and that gives us a better insight. It doesn't. Going home and doing a Bible study by yourself till 3 a.m. in the morning will give you some cool stuff, I promise you, but it won't give you that kind of insight that leads to victory. You gain that insight by participating in suffering for the body. When you are actively sharing in the body, When your active sharing reflects this in the body, you will grow an insight that leads to victory. When you're active in sharing with the lost, your faith, you will gain that insight that leads to victory. Look, I'm I'm sharing this with you right now, fully believing that what the Lord intends for this body for the next coming months is that the Lord's going to send an influx of people that want to seek after God. I, I believe that. As I was praying today, I felt in my heart that God is hes saying, look, open your eyes, the harvest is ripe. But what he's doing in this body is he is awakening us to what we need to grow in so that we can take them in. Priests have got to be consecrated in this place. And as we do that, I believe in the coming. Listen to the words that are starting to be shared from the pulpit and you can understand where God's taken us. We are preaching about a wedding story. We're preaching about the Aswan region because God is directing us towards more evangelism. And to be honest with you, how we're going to reach there is we're going to get it right in here. And we already know that all of us are the Aswan team. We already know that all of us are holding the line so the berserker can do his work. We already know that what God is doing here is a collective unity. So what God is telling us right now that there is a mutual relationship. Let's be more active in sharing our faith because as we do that, we're going to gain more insight. And then when the next Abimbola comes into this room, 
when the next John Dang comes to the next crawfish festival, we have, whatever you call it, we have. When the next JJ shows up or the next Michael Hall, when the next Paul Makowit comes, you know what they're going to see? They're going to see you. And they're going to be looking to you for insight that gives victory. And you're going to have that because you're going to be active in your faith. Amen? Amen. is an invitation to discipleship. That's money. Worth the price of admission a thousand times over. We're not offering people a sales pitch, an elevator slogan. We are giving them an invitation to discipleship. I completely agree with Justin, with what Justin said. What the Lord is doing in us is not only for us. It is for the ones that he intends to bring here. And we have to get ready. We have to be consecrated in growing in what the Lord is doing. In this case and in this house, we're going to make it because not because your priests are not consecrated. We're going to look at it as there's going to be so much work to do that your priests can't get to it. And you're going to have to step up and rise up and be with us. I, just, I want to share just this from Second Chronicles 30. I just want to hit this one, these last few verses, and then Pastor Matt will close this in prayer. Second Chronicles 30 and verse 24. I just want us to catch this. Hezekiah, king of Judah, provided a thousand bulls. Somebody say thousand. thousand. Almost like there was a bull of sacrifice for every generation that he intended to bless. <laughs> and 7,000 sheep and goats, like a perfect amount of sacrifice that was there. That's what the king gave. The king giving offerings so that the people are ready and can be consecrated. What did that cause? The officials provided them with a thousand bulls. They caught the understanding that it was for the generations. And 10,000 sheep and goats. They saw what the king gave and they responded with even more. I can't even see this at all without these. That's awesome. <laughs> a great number of priests consecrated themselves. King gives, the people learn to give, and then people become consecrated. If that's not what's happening in our midst, I'm not quite sure what is. Hmm. The entire assembly, do you see how these concentric circles are getting larger? Yeah. The entire assembly of Judah rejoiced, along with the priests and the Levites and all who had assembled from Israel. There's another ring here. Come on. The king the officials, the Levites, the priests, the assembly. It's rippling out that what started as a king giving and sacrificing and suffering for the people is now reaching every one of them, including the aliens. You mean the ones that didn't belong? Yes. You mean the evangelism was birthed from one man who understood what sacrifice was about and gave all, and then people responded in kind? Yes. Until it keeps rippling out. Including the aliens who had come from Israel and all those who lived in Judah. There was great joy in Jerusalem. Folks, while we're doing this, it is our great joy to suffer for our King that we might become like Him. Amen. Amen. 
It is our great joy. Yeah. Your heart should be filled with rejoicing. Come on, Ittai's in the room. Yeah. Yeah. We are so privileged to be here in a day and a time, in a season. What God has done from the beginning of this house. When it was just the Stevens in a, in a garage, in a living room, before a garage. When it was just the small in number that you're starting to see ripple out because a few understand what sacrifice are about and others are gaining the vision. And we're all, this is starting to move out even to the aliens among us. Amen. That's what we're about, church. Great joy in Jerusalem, for since the days of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel... There had been nothing like this. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people. Your priests are standing. Come on, Levites, let's stand. Isn't it good that God takes aliens and turns them into sons? Yeah. And you can read in this verse and see that God's heart is to get to the foreigners. And so, yeah, when I'm saying aliens, I mean us as some kind of mutant creatures from another planet <laughs> that were filled with sin and now we're made into sons of righteousness. Come on. <laughs> One thing that stood out to me uh, when I, w- I was reading this this morning, uh, in fact, put, put up John 4.34 again, uh, Justin began to close with. We're going to connect this and the first verse of the next chapter, which is the complete thought of, of chapter 30. So John 4.34 says, My food said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me, and to what? Finish. Finish. Oh, it's such a good sight to see when a project gets finished. In the same way that God is aiming at the foreigners joining what the native Israelites were a part of in 2 Chronicles 30, God is aiming for the bride to be complete and joined with the groom. Well, now pull up 2 Chronicles 31, verse 1. Here we go. When all this had ended. Mm. This is the very next thought after everything we just studied. After all this had ended. I mean, you had 14 days of celebration. You had foreigners being reached. Evangelism, the nation's coming in and experiencing revival. Yeah. Isn't it kind of a letdown sometimes when something comes to an end? Yeah. Well, I want to shed just one little nugget about this verse and how it relates to John 4.34. It didn't end. <laughs> this Hebrew word means to bring to a completion, to fulfill. It reached its goal. In fact, when you look in the LXX at the Greek word for this, the root word of the Greek word, is teleos. It's when it comes to its completion, it serves its purpose, and it initiates another goal that it's going to reach to. It's almost as if it's when one seal opens another seal, and then those seals open up some bowls, and then open up some trumpets, and then open up the bride being gifted to the groom. So, as we conclude... Let our hearts rejoice. Amen. Let our hearts rejoice in the fact that God has brought us to a good place where he is restoring and reviving our souls and teaching us the whole goal of what evangelism is. And that's to invite into discipleship. Amen.
Mighty King, we thank you for your word and your spirit is illuminating what you desire inside of this body and this church. That you're giving us the tools that are necessary to reach the lost souls that need discipleship. Lord, we ask that your words are put upon our mouths. That we are directed by your spirit to reach those souls. To give that invitation for discipleship. To bring in your lost sons and daughters into this house and attach them to this way of life. Help our hearts fully attach to this way of life in even greater fashions. So that we can have that life-giving word to invite them into. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. amen.